0: This is episode 58 of the Immunology Podcast, redesigning proteins with Dr. Jamie Spangler. Hey everyone, this is Dr. Jason Goldsmith and Dr. Brenda Roud. Welcome back to the Immunology Podcast, where we have conversations with immunologists. The Immunology Podcast is brought to you by Stem Cell Technologies, a global biotechnology company supporting life science research and fostering communication and collaboration in science. If you enjoy the podcast, rate us and leave us a review. We're always looking for feedback on how it can be improved and for suggestions on guests. Today, we have Dr. Jamie Spengler from John Hopkins on the podcast to talk about her research developing targeted therapeutics for immune diseases. We've also got our usual roundup of recent highlights in the immunology news coming up. But first,
1: dear listeners, don't forget about the upcoming International Union for Immunological Societies Congress that is taking place in Cape Town, South Africa uh, from November 27 to December 2nd. And we're so excited because Jason and I and the whole team is attending. Early bird registration closes on August 30th. So if you have any more questions, you can visit IUIS2023.org if you want to know more. Exciting future plans. But what are you... Dude, you were on holidays. Uh, I was. We discussed this last episode. You're back.
0: I did. did. Drakenfest was the first one. I did 32,000 steps in armor one day. Other days were about 25,000 steps a day. So that's most of a marathon.
1: In armor. So, how much did the armor weigh? My
0: kit's about fifteen pounds.
1: Fifteen pounds. Like, so, for the for the rest of the world, that is about seven and a half kilos or eight kilos. Yeah. Like a like a like a respect, respectable size uh, backpack for like uh, camping. Yeah. Uh, camping out. Okay. Fun. And was it was it what the weather good? Like
0: the weather was, was it pretty you good. Actually, anymore? wasn't too hot. It's five camps that are all fighting each other, and we won. So that was really cool
1: cool how did you win what did win look like did you
0: win like you get points for various things like best costume in the can in the whole event or uh winning sieges and capturing their flags and taking them back and holding them which we did a lot of so and then a big final battle that we had that we won that too so you know it was good stuff it was kind of fun charging a line of archers running around screaming in armor with a couple of swords Oh
1: my god did yeah. your kids like it did your oh kids yeah they were around? battlefield
0: they were healers it was great
1: oh my gosh fun that sounds like a lot of fun and so... then i
0: stuck in a little conference there in between for a few days uh you know presented on a panel with fda and then went back to another vacation
1: nice good that is, no, that's that was, good to was, rest good you've had a you had a hard couple of months i know so yeah. i dropped you
0: know almost five kilos just from working out and running around in armor
1: Oh, good. Well, I mean, maybe I should start doing that armor fit. Uh, <laughs> oh my God very well, very well How about well, you it... Do you have any
0: holiday coming up or are you uh
1: I don't have anything specific planned to be honest i like I like to be a little bit more uh, spontaneous um uh, so you know there's a lot of sunny places in Europe uh readily available, so we'll see probably September. You know the thing is Amsterdam is so nice in the summer. Like you spend here the whole year, you know, in in the gray days and the wind. And you're here in August and it's nice. You can go barbecue in the parks, uh, you know, take your little boat across the canals. And so I actually really like it here in summer. So we'll see. We might wait until the weather starts, you know, going down here and then go south. So I'll let you know. But yeah. But you know what doesn't take vacations in this in this world? science you got it
0: most, great... most of the time it doesn't take a vacation i don't know there's not there's not a lot of data produced late december i will say
1: that's true the one that is is probably not good um it's a so... paper
0: that was held on to for a year in the journal and they finally decided to release it
1: because they wanted because the editors wanted to be home for christmas and they're like you know what let's just let's just give them to they give this to them the, this can be our christmas gift exactly. to the world Yes, so science does not take holidays, which is good because that means we have awesome stories all day around. So why don't you start? Because I'm very excited of mine, but you know,
0: all right, I'm, uh, all right. I'm so nice.
1: I'm gonna just start.
0: All right, I'm gonna start with a uh, cancer cell paper called "Evolution of Immune and Stromal Cell States and Ectotypes During Gastric Adenocarcinoma Progression." Um, first author is Ru Ping Wang it was published here August 14th so this is online only first since it's not technically out yet um, but it's out um, was at MD Anderson there's a lot of the work was done And high level this is one of those papers that if it's your field you need to read it and if it's not exactly your field it's cool to look at the technology it is a very good paper which is why I'm covering it but not one that I can, I can just give you the high level conclusions what they did which is really cool is they got adjacent normal tissue, precancerous tissue, localized tumor, and metastatic tumors from different people. Right. And so ideally, they have adjacent controls always of healthy, of the gastric cancer, and gastric tissue, and then looked at both the tumor itself and the microenvironment around it in terms of flow cytometry and the immune cells present. And then we're able, and then did some tissue microarrays and protein expressions and some other stuff. And we're able to then combine that with multiomics technologies and trace evolution of tumors over time, as well as their microenvironments and kind of develop clustering of the microenvironment as well. And at a super high level, um, it's a really cool map of trying to understand things. And in this case, they show that a specific gene, SDC2, is, which has been associated with cancer before, is really overexpressing over time during progression of the disease. Is kind of their, their, their linkage. But 90% of this is really an exploratory process. They see, for instance, there's a lot of CD8 effector cells early in metastatic tumors but a lot of IgA plasma cells and precancerous tumors. So you see an immune population shift over time as well going on. And so they, they kind of walk through the whole thing. It's one of these kind of tour de force modeling papers, which is why I think it has the impact it does. They, what's interesting is they can kind of do blind segregation where they put everything in and have everything get clustered out and it still clusters by the tumor state. So if you if you throw all the data in together, the precancerous and the malignant were you know the other ends of the spectrum, it it auto-clusters, But you would hope. But being able to see this clustering is really is neat to see. Um you, you see exhaustion of T cells occur over time as cancer progresses. You see exhaustion markers as something, for example, that just falls out of the data. And so it's recapitulates some other general findings that we have, but kind of does it organically with natural patient samples. And then you can see the progression happen. Um, You see suppressive effects of macrophages progress over time as well as angiogenesis genes turn on over time in the macrophage compartment. Uh, IgA positive plasma cells are high in precancerous lesions, but go away later on. It's another um, kind of finding. And then they just cluster things by different, what they call ectotypes that you can look into. But definitely, if you're trying to understand cancer environment over time, progression of disease, or you're trying to do it in your own system of cancer besides gastric, this is a really good example of how to do it right. So, that's what I got for the first one. It's just a really cool, like, multiomic mapping of processes over time, which I appreciate.
1: I mean, that's very important. That does a lot of work, right? Oh, yeah. And, but just to be sure, sh- to understand, these are, Different. They don't follow the same lesion in time. They just have different lesions from different patients at different stages.
0: Correct, but they generally have, or if they have multiple lesions from the same patient in the same time, they'll do that. So they'll always have healthy control gastric next to the lesion. But let's say you have a mildly advanced lesion in the stomach, but they also have distant metastases elsewhere from a second lesion because they have like two parts. They'll take different stages from the same person if Mm. they can. I
1: guess it's always... To some extent, um, I think about the difference between you no, know, it's correlation, causation, kind of idea, because you see the sample, you see this, 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 this material, and it's a snapshot of something that you don't know what's going to happen in the future. Like you see, well, there's a change between, oh, I know, IGE is more common in precancerous lesions than in cancerous lesions, and then you think, well, uh, does this mean that, though, that do they they lose the IgE or it's just that those lesions that don't have IgE don't progress towards that do have Ig don't progress to full cancerous and you just they just drop from the you know the set yeah. that data who knows,
0: set right? but maybe but maybe the fact that good IgA response suppresses cancer or the dropping promotes it, who knows, right? Like that, that yeah, that's yeah, exactly.
1: That per- that's it precisely like that that's there are two options and with that single that single view of it, you cannot tell really in principle. You know, of course there's a lot of mechanistic or a lot of other data you can try to uh, uh, accumulate, but in principle, you you don't know those things. But well, it is very, very useful, very important to to try to find as much information and then uh, more mechanistic uh, research can add, uh, fill the gaps. Okay, so, uh, I want to move away from cancer and talk about Parkinson's. Um, really away
0: from cancer? I'm so confused.
1: Yes. <gasps> I know. But, you know, I, I decided, you'll see why, you'll see why. I decided to just, you know, throw caution to the wind and just go see something new, read a paper uh, that, uh, you know, out of my field, but not really, because... You know who's in there in this story? Who's the, the 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 star in this story is regulatory T-cells. So let me show you how regulatory T-cells can help us in our fight to uh, give people with Parkinson's a therapeutic option. So this is a paper published in Nature, um, July 12th. Uh, first authors, Tai yeon Park and Yi-ha Yon from the lab of Kwan Su Kim. Uh, at uh, Harvard Medical School, so um this paper basically uh, tries describes, you know the benefit that regulatory diesels could have in helping um, a particular type of treatment for Parkinson's, which is transferring the missing cells so uh, parkinson's the 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 sort the origin of Parkinson's is a specific loss of. Some like of, of certain cells, uh, known as midbrain dopamine neurons or MDANs, which are this is a cause of this major motor dysfunction that is of this disease. Uh, and therefore, a lot of people has you know, have always this, this idea that if you could replace these cells, if you could you know, inject these cells or you know, a progenitor cells that gave rise to these cells, you could alleviate the, the progress, progression of the disease. Um, and so. This there's a lot of people, there's there's a lot of work around this this concept, but um, what they show in this paper, you no, know, following the the research, that this doesn't seem to really work very well. Um, so the in kind of a high in kind of a, a high view of the story, what they show is that one of the issues that when you inject these cells, if you want to inject cells for for replacing the missing ones the injection itself can be very problematic. And then you end up losing a lot of your your tra- transferred cells. So how do they go about like studying this system? They basically show they have a model with humanized mouse in which they inject progenitor cells for this dance. Uh, into mice that have been uh, um, have been uh, damaged to imitate the uh, part the uh, Parkinson's disease, so they lose this specific uh, neurons, and they show that in principle most of the cells that they inject about ninety like percent are lost within two weeks of engraftment. So they they inject this in the in the in the brain of the mice, and this uh, is not um, it's not really sustainable. So. Of course, you can always inject a lot of cells, and still, you know, ten percent of a lot could still be a lot. Um, but they trying to find study this a little bit closer. So, what they show is that in, in the they move, so they 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 kind of switch around a little bit between rodent models. So they do some experiments in mice, so you humanize mice, then they do some experiments in, in rats. Um, so, but so they have they kind of take a step back and they go into rat models, and they say they show that. Just the action of injecting something in the brain of the mouse is sufficient to to kind of um, unchain a whole inflammatory response that already can injure the brain itself. So when you think about it, you're if you're in trying to inject very uh, a group of cells which are you know quite sensitive and are and that's probably why in parties are lost uh, by. Generating this inflammatory environment around the injection, literally the the the, the trace of the needle, this is already uh, very detrimental for the survival of the cells. Uh, so they so they basically they have this you know this uh, similar to other other papers we discuss about you know traumatic brain injury. You have the same thing. You have recruitment of inflammatory cells, MHC two positive cells, um, and and this uh, you know, they speculate that uh, basically is killing your transplant cells. So they you know if what you have is uncontrolled inflammation then who you're going to call regulatory t-cells not not the ghost pastors in this case um so they actually show that by uh just in- injecting to wh- when they do this needle trauma adding as little as twenty thousand uh, regulatory cells can significantly suppress the acute uh pro-inflammatory response uh they reduce inflammatory cytokines TNF IL1 beta and uh and the inflammatory infiltrate at day 7 after the injection Not the injection just the, the needle the needle, needle damage um and this works better if you inject them on site than if you kind of expand T-Rex XB1 you just like intravenously give them a, a you know a lot lot of, of T-Rex is much better if you put them right in the spot and one of the main things they see is that they really see a reduction in the filtration of MHC2, MHC2 inflammatory cells, which are the ones uh, very important for uh, initiating this inflammatory response. Um, and so, you know, this seems to work very well. And they show that this principle that of like limiting inflammation can actually help reduce the death of these, uh, of um. Progenitor uh, uh, cells, uh, this mDAP, so uh, these neuronal progenitor cells, to they are meant to replace the uh, lost cells, uh, and they can actually selectively improve the 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 survival of the rice. So because you inject the progenitors, and these progenitors give rise to kind of a little bit of heterogeneous populations, and particularly the one that you want, uh, this uh, is the one that is most affected by the inflammation. So actually, you know, by injecting the regulatory D cells, they seem to be actually selectively favoring the survival of the right kind of cells. Um so that is in principle. So they do a lot of they also look into proliferation. They do seem to 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 see that it's actually a T-rex seem to in general reduce the proliferation of these progenitor cells, which might be a little bit problematic. Uh, and this probably is related to the uh, the expression of TGF. Beta by the T. Rex, uh, but I think that in principle this seems to be still good enough because it uh, it does improve some of the behavioral uh, markers that they do uh, in 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 in, uh, in this in these models. This seems to really improve a little bit. Um, I don't understand completely like the behavioral analysis that they do, but they do seem to improve the the, the recovery of the, of the of the rodents and this would be a, a sign of improved uh, efficacy of the therapy. So um, in principle, of course, I guess that this is kind of a T-Rex story. There's a lot of other kind of smaller stories around this, but what I, but I found, found the most exciting is the idea that if you co-inject T-Rex, you can protect uh, by, you know, acutely uh, preventing inflammation and that this prevention already is, is a huge Improvement. Uh, Of course, you have other issues. If you're, you know, especially in this case, they have some models in which you have kind of allogeneic transplantation. So you know, some of the cells eventually they get uh, rejected by the immune system, just by regular uh, rejection. Uh, But that's kind of a different category of 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 what they were looking at. But um, in principle, uh, you know, maybe this can help uh, patients. Uh, Could be a yeah a way of making. Uh, a stem cell transplant for Parkinson's possible at all. So in a, oh, and just kind of uh, in conclusion, T-Rex to the rescue. Uh, again, they did it again, one more time. They're the heroes of the story.
0: Yeah, I do wonder though, if you're gonna transplant T-Rex, where are you gonna get them from for this and people? You're gonna have to make sure they don't cause their own immune reaction when you're you know, in the host.
1: Well, uh, in principle, you could get them from the patient and just, you know, um, concentrate them. Because I think also the, the idea is that you need to inject them in the brain. Maybe just the fact that they make it all the way there is in, is, is enough.
0: So, so just get I a mean, few from people, isolate what's in their circulation and call it a day because that's a one-off?
1: Yeah. So you can get certain amount of T-Rex from the blood of patients. If you you know, you know get people to do a leukapheresis that they do for other Uh, I assume that from a leukapheresis, you can get, I don't know, a couple million T-Rex, like high quality, uh, you know, uh, potentially uh, uh, proliferative uh, T-Rex. There's also like different definitions of what people use as therapeutic T-Rex, but in principle, you should be able to find that. If not, you can also expand them ex vivo. Uh, The important thing is that you inject them and not just, you know, infuse them. All right. so very exciting
0: hmm. well i have no segue to my next one because it's on hepatitis c
1: mm.
0: and, I, okay. and i don't know how to go from parkinson's to hepatitis c
1: no, if you so do exciting. that's probably a nature paper <laughs>
0: but like that joke this is also in a nature paper um uh, so there you go it was published the 5th of july it's hepatitis c virus rna is five prime capped with flavin adenine adenine dinucleotide first authors anna sherwood in the lab of jeppe vinther so did you know that viruses have their five prime ends capped so instead of that poly a at the end that is highly uh Antigenic, and our bodies know if they see something like that, it's time to go kill, kill.
1: Was that RNA viruses, DNA viruses, either way?
0: RNA virus. So there's been some indication of other capping in other viruses, but with NAD. But this is the first case where they've been able to determine that hepatitis C five prime end is FAD capped. And the FAD is directly responsible. They show it in this paper for immune system evasion. So if you remove the cap, the cells do not replicate. Uh, they, you know, it, it, they, the virus doesn't replicate as well because it's found out and then killed. So they also do this really interesting. They show that it's not a post-translational capping. It happens de novo with translation or, or trans sorry transcription of the of the RNA. So, you know, one idea is that it's out there and then an enzyme comes after your RNA is fully made and caps it and calls it a day. They, they show that if you take a fully formed RNA that's capped and put it in a cell versus RNA that's not capped, a non-capped RNA is going to get degraded much quicker because the immune system finds it and kills it. Cool but they also show that when the virus does this it's with de novo viral replication. So if you take a whole if you if you kill the you know if you do this in a in a cell that's enzyme incompetent and then go introduce that RNA into the into another version of a virally infected cell that's enzyme competent it will not then fix it. Right? It's so during transcription of the RNA when they're making copies is when this occurs. But what's really cool is this um they identify the pathway. It's from Rig one mediated innate immune recognition. It does not recognize this, but it has nothing on the stability. It doesn't affect the baseline stability. It just affects immune recognition. So that well, maybe this is immune, you know, RNA stability and you're changing degradation. They they eliminate that as a possibility, and it's truly just immune system surveillance hiding, cloaking, as you will by uh, this five prime FAD. Protects the RNA from degradation by the immune system, and so that is how HCV escapes detection. There's different strain, so hepatitis C has different strains, and there's certain strains that have more or less of this proclivity for a five prime capping, and that actually also you see affects their what we know about their normal kinetics of transcript of infection and like how much the onset is and delayed onset. You know, more delayed onset diseases, things that have less five prime capping, because then you're going to have more cycles of killing and immune evasion or immune sensing. Whereas five prime cap stuff, you can have a viral spike much quicker because it evades detection. And so they map that out too. So it's pretty cool.
1: So is there any drawback of having this FAD cap? Why aren't every, like, why wouldn't every then the virus do this?
0: Uh, they don't all have evolved it fundamentally. Or they're not detected by, say, rig one. And this is only gonna be something that rig one is affected by.
1: Yeah. But then not every is every single molecule of the of the of the virus covered, or it's like just some of them because
0: it's the it's the the five prime nucleus side of the of so so a lot of these RNA viruses are weird in that they're stored as the negative side and that's the positive side that does it and so this is um this is not both sides it's not the positive and negative
1: hmm. It's only okay um, it's...
0: There, there's a, there, well sorry so there is depending on this replica of the strain how much of the positive and negative five prime ends get this fad is variable okay interestingly
1: and the actual capping is done by endogenous pro- proteins that they hijack, or do they have their own enzyme?
0: It's a low average frequency of capping in humans. I believe it's a human enzyme that, that is hijacked for this.
1: All oh, these viruses.
0: So it's all HCV negative and some of the positive ones.
1: The you mean as, the as RNA, the result, and modeling. it's a
0: result as a result, right, of the RNA. It's a result of the the, the viral polymerase during repl- during its replication step when it's replicating the RNA. That's when it then hits.
1: Okay. Well, another way, you know, the the this this viruses manage to exist. They're just, you know, sneaking around, undetected. Yeah, it's like unprotected. All right. So another reason not to get Hep C. Um, so to finish uh, our conversation today, also really cool story um, about food allergy and why it makes you sick. All right, why you avoid? we have this tendency. You're like animals have this tendency to avoid foods that are bad. Um, and so this paper uh, is called Mast Cells Link Immune Sensing to Antigen Avoidance Behavior. And it was published also in Nature. Um, and it just, I thought it was a super cool story because it starts with allergy, talking about allergies in a particular cell, you know, which is in the title, mast cells. Uh, before I forget, first author Thomas Plum um, and Rebecca Binsberger from the Lab Hans Reimer Rodewald at um, uh, the Cancer German Cancer Research Center in Heidelberg in Germany. Um, so, in in this story, they are looking into what are mast cells doing because mast cells, you know, are these these cells that are very important in the context of uh, uh, type two immunity, and they are the main responsible for, you know, uh, allergic disease. They have these, you know, strong receptors for IgE uh, that if you become sensitized against an allergen, um, they bind this, they have all these IgEs, you know, they're waiting to, to bind the allergen, and when that happens, mast cells very quickly activate, release all these allergic mediators, and then you are having a bad time. So I guess that in principle, sometimes it's a little bit unclear what is the the function of such strong responses, uh, because also we know that it has a lot of drawbacks, you know, alert allergies, asthma, uh, you know, a lot of issues, you know, right, <laughs> uh, hay fever, as I'm experiencing currently, and but there's another thing that also you know uh, throughout this 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 paper shows that mast cells are uh, intimately involved, which is antigen-specific avoidance behavior, which is, as I mentioned, the idea that if you have a food allergy, you can quickly, especially uh, if you have a mouse model, uh, mice will quickly avoid ingesting a antigen that they're sensitized against, even before they it makes them sick. So it's like, they know very quickly that this is uh, an antigen that they should not be consuming. And again, it's a very interesting story. Uh, they use, uh, basically, they, they have a system in which they sensitize mice against ovalbumin uh, through intraperitoneal injections uh, with a uh, adjuvant. And they show that then mice that, are sensitized start avoiding water that has egg white so before being sensitized they liked it they preferred it to you know just simple water but once you start uh once they after a couple of days after being sensitized they start avoiding and they actively search for the regular water if they heat them so they have this whole system which they measure how much water of each one they drink and they can they can you know show quantitatively that there's a preference so they they use they have a mouse model in which they uh have a uh their uh, which mice are knocked out so they are uh, depleted in mast cells they have the cpa cpa three knockout conditional knockout mouse and um they show that mast cells are really important in this avoidance behavior so if they don't have mast cells they stop avoiding on the one hand you think well makes sense the mast cells are making the allergy um then if you don't have mast cells you don't have you know all the unpleasant uh results of allergy um but they they do show that there's more than that and it's and that the the response is so quickly that it's kind of precedes the a full blown allergic reaction and it's below even when you have amounts of antigen that are below kind of the threshold of of a full-blown allergic reaction um So they do. It's it's a very quite quite long story, but I think that um, what they show is that these mast cells, the activation of mast cells in the lining of the uh, of the stomach already. So very 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 early on, like on the upper uh, digestive tract, they the release of uh, particular leukotrienes by these mast cells seems to be the critical. A critical signal that signals to the kind of the behavioral centers of the mouse and makes them uh, avoid this particular substance. Um, so that's uh, kind of a very direct, very quick response that they have, uh, that goes directly to the to the kind of the and uh, this immune brain axis. So it's like a kind of very direct re- reaction directly to the to the brain. Uh, and that this um uh prevents that the mouse continues drinking or consuming this allergen and then hopefully that results in a in, in and in not a full blown uh inflammatory reaction uh if you know, it's because you stop early enough I, I think that's really cool because then now this idea that you can directly inform your brain of some of these very low concentrations are insufficient for you to to, for your immune system your mast cells which are very sensitive to tell you stop you shouldn't be doing this Uh, so then maybe that's a reason why it's 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 not there must be some advantage of having extremely sensitive cells that live in your tissues and do this stuff so maybe this is it i mean got applied to toxins or other things that also make you sick uh so um i think that's very important um that being said, there's a second paper that was also, and now it's kind of a pre-accelerated pre-print. It's not fully print, uh, uh, published in uh, in Nature, but I think they they made it available because it's also a very similar story. Uh, so I just want to quickly uh, mention it. So um, this is from first author Esther Floresheim and uh, last author Ruslan Metzitov. From uh, the uh, from Yale uh, uh, University School of Medicine, um, and they also they have a similar model in which they also uh, sensitize mice with ovalbumin, and they also show that there's an avoidance. And I guess the conclusions are very similar. Uh, but one thing they add is the. Um, is the the presence of another molecule, so they also find another molecule that it's uh, produced by the epithelial cells uh, called GDF15, and that also is responsible or the partially responsible of singling to the brain and inducing these uh, avoidance behavior. Uh, so I just wanted to kind of also uh, shout out to them because uh, it was clearly a very close race uh, into publishing this 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 new idea of mast cells being. Uh, gatekeepers of allergic uh, responses in the in the stomach. So now you know.
0: That, that's super interesting. I think I remember hearing something about this in the Twitter verse or, or earlier preliminary papers because I remember learning that the allergy system kind of sends early signals to avoid things. And just to go back a sec to my paper, you'd asked about what hijacks, it's the viral RNA just takes host riboflavin F A D, and then puts it on, but it does hijack the host nutrients and takes it in, and it has to use the host process. What an
1: ungrateful guest. You're there, you know, consume all the nucleotides, those, and proteins. Feels your sandwich. Gosh.
0: All right. Well, we're going to be speaking here to Dr. Jamie Spangler at uh, John Hopkins in just a moment, but before we get to that, uh, you need to know how to activate, expand, and differentiate your cells with cytokines, chemokines, and growth factors from stem cell technologies. These reagents are validated to ensure reproducibility across a variety of applications from immunology and stem cell research to much more. Explore more at wwwstemcell cytokines. Hi everyone,
1: we are joined today uh, by Dr. Jamie Spangler. She is a assistant professor at the Departments of Biomedical and Chemical and Biomolecular Engineering at Johns Hopkins University. And uh, her lab is interested in engineering immune proteins, uh, such as cytokines, antibodies, growth factors, to uh, achieved targeted activation of the immune system. And among her most recent work uh, that I, we're going to be talking about, uh, it's uh, you can find engineered cytokines that have improved stability that can target specific cell types, also novel antibodies targeting difficult uh, proteins such as uh, G-protein uh, couple receptors. So, uh, Dr. Spangler, why don't you, first of all, welcome to the Immunology Podcast. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for uh, having me. (laughs) Yeah, very excited, Jason. Do you have a question, or should I start?
0: Oh, I mean, I'm a biochemist by training. Oh
1: yeah. I, I yeah. I'll give you. I'll give you this one then.
0: All right. So so to start with, we we all know the axiom structure dictates function, but you seem to be taking that to the next level, where you modify structure to change function. So one of the things I learned in grad school and a galaxy far, far away is that every time we try to predict what structure does, we're at best half right. Right? If you're like, oh, I'm mean, gonna, I think this is gonna be an alpha helix, well maybe type of thing. So how fundamentally, how are you able to to get to the point where you can make intelligent decisions about structural changes to the things you're working on to do all the cool stuff you're doing? Because to me, that's like the secret sauce, like you're able to change it and not just have a disaster every time.
2: Yeah, so what's been really remarkable um, in recent years, and my lab of course is uh, experimental, um, not as much computational, but we do a lot of interfacing. Um, with computational platforms. And many of you, I'm sure, have heard of AlphaFold, um, you know, Rosetta, and and some of these other computational infrastructures that use, right, basic thermodynamic and uh, biophysical, biochemical properties and structural information to, you know, sort of derive exactly um, what you're talking about, Jason, which is, you know, sort of the holy grail of like, you know, how will structure impact function, right, how will sequence uh, lead to structure and all these various things. And it's just, uh, you know, astonishing to see how much progress we've made from, you know, even like, you know, five, 10 years ago um, to being able to to really with frightening accuracy um, say what a protein will look like, how it will fold, how it will behave, um, and then utilizing that information um, to redesign right, existing proteins and uh, design brand new ones, right, exploring new um, sort of spaces uh, or um, regions within uh, protein sample space that, that were inaccessible before. And so I think that really, um, I, my short answer would be that you know computational tools have really advanced this, but it's not just the computational tools. And what my lab is very interested in doing is really interfacing Right, the experimental workflows with the computational tools, because you know we're not at a point where you can just say like, okay, here's the structure that jumped out of the computer and that's what it's going to look like. You still have to make the protein, right? You still have to actually implement it um, and to ensure that it's, it's behaving in the way that you would want. Um, but what's exciting is that we've gotten to the point where there's so much accuracy that there's less of sort of the guess and test and back and forth and a lot more of the, okay, We've got this now. Let's really harness this to, you know, get new insights into protein uh, biology, and then also to utilize those to design better drugs. I guess that
1: a lot of a lot of your work is uh, revolving around designing new versions of cytokines, um, and which I think is. It's so interesting because cytokines, you know, their whole thing is being of a particular shape. So they will, you know, start a particular uh, uh, signaling in the cell. So on the one hand, it feels like it should be very hard to not mix things up in a way. But then on the other hand, the, the possibilities seem unlimited. Unlimited. So maybe we can start thinking, maybe we can talk a little bit about uh, that. How do you um approach that work and so how do you decide which what are the kind of cytokines what are the limitations of natural cytokines for examples uh and what are with throughout your work what are they well how have you been able to um approach those issues uh and hopefully improve upon them and also I have a question just technical when you when you speak about a cytokine mim- mim- mimetic or mimetic that you use that term, does it mean something specific or it's just the idea that is a synthetic version of the cytokine?
2: Great questions. Um, so uh, just starting with your mimetic, um, just to clarify before going into some of the other um, aspects that, that you were interested in. Um, when we use the term mimetic, it's exactly like you said, it's just something that's different um, than what exists in nature. And I think the reason that, you know, we say medic, uh, as opposed to, for example, mutine, right, is the term that you would use if you derive something from a natural cytokine and then make a few, you know, sort of point mutations to that um, sequence and then say, okay, here's, you know, kind of our mutated or, um, you know, engineered version of a cytokine. This is actually like engineered from scratch when we talk about, you know, memetics. And so we're talking about de novo designed um, using computational algorithms, um, sequences that have nothing to do <laughs> with what exists in nature, um, and really just kind of going back to the drawing board kind of from scratch. So that's um, you know how we design we define like mimetics, uh, you know as opposed to um, you know, sort of the the natural proteins or derivatives thereof that that we're discussing. And again, it has to do with sample space, right? If you're saying like, okay, you start with a sequence and then you can mutate you know a few residues, right? You're still limited, Um, And you also have kind of that muscle memory of the way that the cytokine was originally designed. Uh, But when you're just building from scratch, right, you can make your own, uh, you know, sort of little pieces that you'll put together um, and ultimately um, create your own, you know, kind of build a bear uh, cytokine sort of thing. So that's um, kind of a cool um, approach. Um, to answer your other question about why natural cytokines suck is drugs, um, nobody asked them to be drugs, right? Like <laughs> when you have proteins in nature, uh, what are they pressured to do, right? They're not pressured to be therapeutics. And in fact, they're pressured to actually be kind of jack of all trades, right? They're pressured to do a lot of different things um, in one molecule, right? Because there's only a limited number of molecules that right, exist in your body, Um and all of them, right, or not all of them, but many of them are multifunctional, right? So they can do a lot of different things. And when you have a drug, you actually want it to do a very specific thing, right? And you really don't want it to have off-target effects for two reasons. One is getting diverted in all these different directions is going to prevent it from doing its thing, right, that it's supposed to do and limit efficacy. Um, and then also going in all these different directions could lead to unwanted or undesirable side effects, right, or harmful side effects. So. Um, really, right? What we want to do um, in terms of engineering proteins is to make them a lot more selective and specific, um, as you mentioned before. You know, kind of to specific cell types um, or to specific functions uh, that that they would p- potentially perform. Um, another limitation with natural cytokines um, is that again, um, they're not necessarily engineered to be stable. For example, for manufacturing processes, right? Because they're in your body, right? They're not necessarily outside of your body, um, and they wouldn't necessarily be right in an environment um, that you know they would be subjected to. You know, um, in uh, certain conditions if they were being uh, scaled up for, uh, you know, uh, good manufacturing pro- uh, processes or, or other sorts of um, protocols like that. So, um, I guess you know uh, the, uh, where I'm going with that is like, you know, when you have a natural cytokine, it's very prone to, you know, potentially getting degraded or, you know, aggregation or, you know, other sort of instability, um, aspects. And so, you know, there's a lot to be desired, um, in terms of making that into a stable molecule, um, that you'd be able to scale up as a drug. Um, and then finally, um, Proteins, uh, you know, of a small size, which encompasses cytokines, um, are very quickly cleared um, from bloodstream, um, and they actually, there are a lot of down-regulatory, you know, sort of mechanisms and pathways that prevent cytokines from sort of, you know, being unchecked, right, the system of checks and balances, right, in your body, and that's great, um, you know, to sort of keep everything in balance and prevent Uh, You know, cytokines from, you know, eliciting like cytokine storm or going crazy, Um, but that's really not great if you want a drug that's going to be durable, right, and have a sustained uh, long-term effect in your body that you don't keep having to dose or infuse like every five seconds. So, um, you know, there's a lot of, um, you know, sort of room for engineering um, and a lot to be desired in terms of making cytokines into long-lasting drugs.
0: So- I don't think devil's advocate's the right word but to to think about the other side of this a lot of small molecule drugs we have are g-protein couple receptor targeted which kind of has their own unique way that if you hit the receptor too long and too hard it shuts down so it has its own doesn't matter if it's a drug or an endogenous molecule for it; it's going to shut itself down at a certain point. And then, when we think of cytokine signaling to date, most of our cytokine signaling drugs are antibodies to stop them. So, if you create these really cool designer IL whatever's that hit it, hit it hard. Don't don't um, have the off-target or the uh, the signaling shut down pathways. While it's a really cool tool molecule, put that aside, like figuring out what the cytokines each individually do in the pathways, yes, great. But from a drug perspective, do you think there could be concerns there where you're hitting too hard with a receptor because the cytokines, you really, when you activate this, you wanna activate two or three things like they do because if you don't, badness, And I'm hand waving for the audience because they can't see me, but you know, little, little air quote, badness could occur. So I wonder about that.
2: Yeah, no, no, it's it's a great point. And we think about that a lot. And I think the great thing about engineering is you can engineer in whatever direction you want, right? So you could engineer things, right, to have a kill switch, right? You could engineer things so that you can sort of create or design, right, the balance of, of what should or shouldn't happen, um, and the other thing I would say is there's different types of stability, right? So like when I say that we made, for example, some of our recent work with IL-4, we made a hyperstable version of IL-4, which is an interesting word. Uh, and what we were actually referring to was the thermal stability. So we basically made something um, that is very resistant to any sort of heat-based uh, denaturation. However, it can still be chemically um, degraded by proteases. Um, And it can still be down-regulated, right, through um, internalization and uh, lysosomal degradation and trafficking. Um, And it can still be cleared very quickly through renal filtration, um, unless you extend the half-life in some artificial way. And so um, I guess two things, right? One is, uh, you know, we have the capacity to sort of engineer how this thing will be um, processed and regulated and also there's different layers and levels um, on which the, um, you know, sort of balance um, and overall uh, distribution of the cytokine or the molecule that we create can be controlled. Um, and we can kind of fine tune each of those processes um, and how our protein would interface with each, with each of those processes um, to sort of optimize its performance for the particular application that we would want, but it, it's a great point. And right, I mean, I think anytime you know you're creating a monster, right, you, you have to be very careful um, about you know what you're unleashing.
1: When it comes to finding this mimetics, um, so just for me to understand, do you look? So you say you you don't want to make a variation of the natural. Oh, you don't want to make a, a mutine necessarily. So how is, what is your 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 workflow? How do you, for example, you have a recent uh, publication in which you, you're looking at, at a uh, mutine of, that imitates IL-2 and IL-15 signaling, uh, mm-hmm. if, I, if I remember correctly. So what are these molecules? What do they have?
2: Yeah, yeah. So um, the idea behind the memetics, you know, is really um, kind of this de novo concept that, you know, all of the sequence space, right, um, that we have of natural proteins, right, is going to be somehow derived, um, you know, from the original parent molecule. And here, it's actually using um, computational predictions to figure out kind of piece by piece how we can build an alpha helix, right? How we can build secondary structure um, to make something look um, and behave uh, in the way that we would want, right? Sort of fixing those particular um, kind of atomic interactions that would occur um, with the specific amino acids that that are chosen. And so in the case of the uh, Neo215 that you referred to, um, it's actually totally different like night and day Um, In terms of the sequence, in fact, um, the first molecules that we were looking at um, didn't have any tryptophan or phenylalanine. And so we couldn't even measure um, the UV absorbance. Um, And we had to do like Bradford assays to actually figure out the concentration, uh, because, again, they were just so different from from natural proteins and um, in terms of their, um, you know, biochemical and uh, makeup. Um, but yeah, I think, uh, you know, the, the molecules themselves, right. Are just, you know, encoded, um, in, in this case, uh, we use, uh, E. coli to produce those molecules, um, but they can also be produced in, uh, you know, million cell systems or other, you know, types of hosts, um, to ultimately, um, express those particular sequences. But, um, there's nothing special about them other than they kind of recapitulate, Um, those interfaces and interactions. Um, And also, again, that they have, you know, the kind of packing um, on their helical core um, to allow uh, for, uh, you know, sort of optimization of stability um, through, you know, sort of the non-covalent interactions, um, you know, that are happening within the protein.
1: I really like that idea that it doesn't really matter. It's, I know it makes a lot of sense, of course, but I guess often one has the impulse to think that the natural version, because it has so many millions of years of evolution behind it, it has to be the best option, the only option. But that's obviously not true. Uh, when you bring it up, he's like, oh, of course. It's, as long as it, if it looks like a cytokine, it, Moves like a cytokine is gonna the cells is gonna think it's a cytokine, um, but and so in a more f- philosophical way, what what do you think that tells us about how these molecules came to be at the beginning? What are why are if you can make a molecule that is well, I guess you 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 did refer to the idea that they have may, many they cannot afford to be super specific because they do need to have a very large space, and you kind of start from scratch. A cell uh, cannot evolve things from scratch like we do. But I don't know; it just in a way really blows my mind to think you can just choose not to follow the rules.
2: No, absolutely. I ask myself that question all the time: of like, why did nature do that? <laughs> you know, <laughs> why would they go in that direction? Right? What would? Why would they choose that? You know, particular um, approach. And, you know, I think sometimes, you know, there may be an obvious answer, right? Where, you know, there's a particular evolutionary pathway, right, that things were forced down, um, you know, either uh, particularly in the immune system, right, to avoid um, some sort of infection, right, opportunistically, um, or to prevent, um, you know, sort of an uh, out-of-control um, immune response to, to a particular uh, immune threat. Um, or pathogen, right? There be different things, you know, related to cancer and aging, right? That um, you know may have evolved um, depending on you know lifespans and particular uh, threats that that people face, you know, environmentally um, over time. And yeah, I mean, I think there there's many different reasons, right? Many different pressures that we're under, um, but there very different, right, from the types of pressures that you would want to subject, say, a therapeutic um, to. And so exactly like you said, they are optimized for either one function or maybe many different functions, right, to sort of perform those. Um, But there's also this opportunity to say, well, what function right, or what selective pressure do we want to give to this molecule? And then we can use like these really powerful platforms that my lab uh, uses a lot experimentally, like directed evolution um, to say, okay, here's our objective um, from a functional standpoint. And how do we get that to kind of match up um, with the chemical makeup of uh, this particular molecule?
0: So I wanted to cover your platform a little bit with your IL-4 work. So you create an IL-4 mimetic that is ultra specific to only IL-4 versus any of the cross talking, right? So how how do you, so you take IL-4, how, work, walk us through the the how you do the magic.
2: Right, right. So the IL-4 system is very interesting um, and we're really just kind of, only beginning to kind of scratch the surface of what's going on there. So interleukin-4 can actually signal through two different receptor types um, called conveniently type one and type two. So the natural IL-4 can go both ways uh, through type one and type two. And then there's another natural cytokine related to IL-4 that can only signal through type two and it's actually called IL-13. So, There's the IL four IL thirteen axis, as people call it, um, where essentially there's one molecule that can do both type one type two. There's one molecule that can do type two, but there's no molecule in nature that can do just type one. So it's been very hard, right, in the past, to actually decouple the functions um, and kind of disentangle like what IL four is doing versus IL thirteen, because there's nothing that just does type one. So you can kind of like you know, reverse extrapolate like, oh, okay, you know, IL-4 can do more than IL-13 and these things like whatever, but there's not something that really asks the question of like, what happens if you just touch type 1? So what we had done uh, was to actually engineer de novo a molecule that only interacts with type 1 receptors. Um, And so now we sort of have this trifecta of molecules, the Neo4 that's type 1, the 13 that's type 2, and then IL-4 naturally, which does both. And this actually offers huge insight into what IL 4 is doing and how it's doing that, you know, sort of through the distribution of basically the type 1 versus type 2 receptors um, on different cell types throughout the body. And so we're doing a lot of studies, you know, sort of in vitro, first looking kind of simplest first, um, looking at cellular systems that display one type of receptor or the other, or mixed population um, where it might have, uh, you know, cells that express both receptors um, or different cell types that express different levels of different receptors. Um, And then actually putting that into a more complex in vivo um, model um, in animals where we kind of look at how that molecule, right, distributes uh, throughout the body um, and what types of effects it has kind of the tissue level um, rather than just kind of the cellular level. Um, And so, yeah, basically what we did was we sort of created something that nature hadn't done um, to actually understand nature better, (laughs) um, which was kind of an interesting um, sort of, uh, you know, kind of paradox there. And then hopefully uh, to use that to say, okay, this is what just type one is doing. This is what just type two is doing. So which one of these, you know, do we want? Um, And why, you know, to to get back to Brenda's question, right? Like, why did nature evolve this molecule that can signal through both, um, you know, with pretty similar affinities and activities? Um, And, you know, how does nature regulate um, what IL-4 is actually doing? And is there some benefit, um, you know, potentially from a therapeutic standpoint um, to having just one pathway um, or the other? And, you know, getting back to the point about, you know, sort of inhibiting cytokines and, you know, how generally most of the success we've seen so far, we just wrote a review actually on the IL-4, IL-13 pathway, like talking about this, like most of the success has been in actually inhibiting um, the different pathways. What about, you know, kind of the agonism, right? The activating the pathways like selectively or in a controlled way um, that we could actually, you know, make the cytokines do something that we would want them to do, as opposed to just kind of being the enemy um, and shutting them down. So
1: as you show this, there's a lot of um, using this, this, these novel molecules for research and for understanding pathways and for understanding how biology works is, is, is really good. But then, so you, there's also this other version in which you can use these as therapies. And that's also much, a much longer road to to get it into, for example, uh, actual clinical therapy. So maybe are there specific molecules or specific, maybe not necessarily from your lab, but in the field in general that are close to a therapeutic uh, uh, protocol Are are there clinical trials? What what can you tell us about the medical applications of these um, types of molecules?
2: Yeah, so excitingly, it's really just been kind of a renaissance, you know, um, over the past probably like 10, 15 years of cytokine engineering, sort of enabling uh, the use of cytokines as therapeutics. People initially, right, were trying to just use the cytokines themselves. Um, And as I talked about, there's a lot of limitations of those, even if you extend the half-life, even if you overcome some of the clearance issues, um, you know, just of the pleiotropy of those um, and their overall uh, efficacy and, and performance. Um, but there's really been uh, very promising work. Um, I would say the most ad- one of the most advanced cytokines, of course, um was one of the kind of OG <laughs> uh, originals was I l two. um that that space has has really improved. Unfortunately, there have been a few uh, kind of um, I would say pitfalls or um, you know, sort of, uh, You know, false starts um, a little bit uh, in recent years as people are trying to figure out what is the right IL-2, what, you know, properties would we want in terms of activating the immune system um, in a productive manner. Um, And that can be different um, a lot of times between, uh, as you said, there's a lot of stages to sort of getting to that point. And that can be very different between cellular models and animal models and then non-human primates, right? And then going into actual people um, and and seeing how they behave. Um, But there's been huge progress and advances, particularly for IL-2 in autoimmune diseases, um, people are using low doses of IL 2 since, in general, regulatory T cells are a lot more sensitive to IL 2 uh, than things like CD4, CD8 of factor T cells and NK cells. Um, and so people have been kind of leveraging that by using very low amounts of IL 2. Um, and there have been a lot of really great um, advances um, in a lot of different um, autoimmune disorders, um, in particular. There's a recent study in colitis. Um, there's been a lot of great work in diabetes, um, lupus, um, in uh, transplantation medicine. So a lot of um, sort of autoimmune related uh, applications. And uh, what's exciting is there's a lot of work, uh, including from our lab, um, that's really trying to piggyback on IL-2's already uh, strong bias towards t to make that more than just a bias, but make that pretty much binary, like exclusively like it would only signal and only stimulate you know, Tregs um, to a large extent, um, and seeing how that can be used as a therapeutic, um, even better than low-dose IL-2, right? Because the danger of low-dose IL-2 is, what if it becomes a little bit too high for low-dose IL-2 um, and then leads to that same pathogenic um, uh, auto-reactivity uh, that's sort of driving the autoimmune disease? So um, I think there's there's been a lot of progress, um, in particular in, in IL-2 biology, um, that's really informed uh, the, the design of, of those molecules. Um, I think there's a lot of other uh, cytokine systems, uh, particularly emerging. IL21, um, IL-7, people are really understanding better um how those cytokines work, how they can be harnessed. Um, IL-12 historically has been, you know, just absolutely <laughs> toxic for, for everything. Um, and now people are exploring new strategies, for example, masking. Um, which is where basically you put um, some other molecule um, in, uh, uh, you fuse another molecule uh, in complex with uh, your cytokine of interest, in this case IL-12. And it basically, it's uh, like putting a mask on something, but it basically cloaks um, or protects the IL-12 from being able to act until you want it to. So for example, you could put a protease cleavable or a pH cleavable linker that will only come off in the tumor microenvironment, so you only right unmask and unleash uh, the IL-12 in the tumor, um, as opposed to when it's just you know circulating in the blood or in other tissues. So, um, you know, there's there's different ways that people have thought about kind of the localization um, of these molecules, as well as um, you know their specificity and uh, activity. Um, to really optimize them as drugs. And it's very exciting to see so many companies um, and so many clinical trials, um, you know, uh, exploring these new approaches um, and and getting really good traction.
0: Well, I'd love to have another half hour where I just talk to you about protein purification. But given that, uh, we tend to shift gears at the end of the conversation and try to learn a little bit more about our guests and something not necessarily related to their main field of life. So, so, for you, the question is what is the best piece of advice you've ever received? It can be either personal or professional. It does not matter,
2: yeah. so, um, I was gonna say is like you know, it's kind of like there's all this pressure of like, what's the best? you know this or that? like it's always like, you know, kind of the superlative um you know question um but but, for me, I would say just like the way that I live my life, not just science, like you know, sort of all aspects um is kind of like the, if you fail the plan, you plan to fail, right, kind of thing. Uh, that's I think that's one of the best pieces of advice in my mind because I think that um, you always want to have a plan. Now, that plan, right, who knows what's going to happen or if that's going to bear out or how you know the world decides, especially in science, right? Um, everything you could possibly think of and even things you could never imagine will go wrong, right? But if you don't have a plan, right, if you don't go in with sort of a hypothesis and, um, you know, kind of a motivation and a rationale and an idea going forward, then you really, at the end of it, right, you'll kind of get nothing out of it, right? Because you don't actually know what happened. Um, you don't really learn um, or go through the process. So I think for me, it's really important um to have a plan in place, again, to be flexible and be understanding that that's not necessarily what's going to happen. Um, But I think that, you know, having that uh, step um, really forces you to do a lot of the learning already, and then also to get so much more out of the experience.
1: That sounds like very sound advice. And I think our listeners are also going to appreciate the spirit of that. What do you think, Jason?
0: Oh, I mean, I'm a big planner. I'm the dude that has my daily, weekly, monthly, and yearly plan. (laughs)
2: <laughs> I, when I started making like lists, like I, I was resistant to it for a little while. I think it was during my postdoc where I just started making lists. And I was like, oh, I'm just going to spend all my time making lists. It's a waste of time. No, 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 no. Um, the amount of time that you save, right, from just having the list, right, and not sitting there like thinking about what do I need to do? Like, what I can't remember. like da, da, da. Like now, like you have a list and everything on the list will happen um and it's amazing so yeah no definitely understand all right
1: then as you said what did you say uh you fail plan the fail the plan or plan the fail as well
2: exactly exactly
0: so yeah failing to plan is planning to fail
1: okay failing the plan is planning to fail excellent all right so it was very nice to have you today it was very interesting discussion uh i mean I, there's so much about proteins and their structure that I never thought I would be uh, interested about, but you know, immunology brings you something new every day. So thank you for joining. Uh, I'm sorry, Jason, we did not get to know the details, um, but there's only so much time we have.
2: Yeah. If you stop by my lab, you know, we can go through the FPLC and, and have some fun. <laughs> there,
0: so. Yeah. I, I tried to purify a membrane associated protein. Oh God.
2: Gotcha.
0: Yeah. <laughs> at, 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 Micromolar concentrations. And? Yeah, yeah. And no. it likes to aggregate and then fall to the bottom of the tube.
1: Unsurprisingly,
2: though. Yeah, the nice white junk there. Yeah, that, that's always encouraging. Mm. Yeah.
0: At least I got a lot of protein. <laughs> but with that, thank you very much for coming on. All right.
2: Thank you. Have a great day.
0: That brings us to the end of our show. Don't forget to subscribe to our newsletter at www.immunologypodcast.com to get the show notes, including an episode summary and links to all the interview and roundup papers. You can also reach out to us on Twitter at @immunopodcast or via email info at info@immunologypodcast.com with feedback or to suggest guests. See you next time.